Welcome back to the Dirsch Show. Um, yesterday in Kansas, a very, very Republican state, there was a referendum essentially on the right of a woman to choose abortion versus the right of life of the fetus. And surprising to some, not at all to me, the right to choice won overwhelmingly over the right to life in a very Republican, in a very Republican uh, state. Um, this may be the beginning uh, of the fulfillment of a prediction that I made in 1973 when Roe versus Wade uh, came down. Let me be very clear about my view. I favor a woman's right to have an abortion until the time of viability, certainly the first several months of, uh, of pregnancy. That's my personal, moral, religious, um, political uh, view, my own personal view. But I was opposed to the decision in Roe versus Wade because I didn't think it had a basis in constitutional law. I think one could have written a decision, perhaps, that would uh, have provided a stronger basis in the Equal Protection Clause and the Ninth Amendment and the Fourth Amendment. Um, but the decision itself was very result-oriented. Uh, there were a majority of justices um, who favored a woman's right to choose abortion, and they found a constitutional basis for um, making that the law of the United States. Um, and as I said, uh, although I favor the woman's right to choose abortion, I prefer to have it done legislatively because I think abortion is a very, very hard issue. Um, um, the pro-abortion uh, movement, for example, Florence Kennedy was one of the pioneers in the movement, absurdly said having an abortion is like having an appendix removed. You don't need the state's permission to have an appendix removed. Why should you need the state's permission to have a fetus removed? Well, the, the analogy is absurd. An appendix is a nothing. It has no legal status, no basis. Nobody's ever regretted um, um, getting rid of an, an appendix. A fetus is different. A fetus is potential life. Now, I think you have to make a logical difference between uh, a several-day-old zygote and then there are all kinds of other words that describe a collection of cells which are a potential human being, but so, so, so far from being a human being that it's hard to believe that it deserves any constitutional protection. There's a big difference between early pregnancy, which can be stopped with a pill, uh, and late-term pregnancy, which requires surgery, can be dangerous and people say painful to the, to the fetus. I don't know the answer to that question. I do know there's an enormous difference. And I know that extremists on both sides don't see a difference. Uh, extremists in the right to life movement, say a day old zygote has the same rights as a 15 year old child. Nonsense, ridiculous, absurd, extremist. And the people on the other side say that a viable fetus, uh, which is just days away from being birthed and can live on its own, uh, is, uh, has no rights at all. Um, absurd, ridiculous. Um, both extreme arguments make no sense at all. Um, and I'm just saying what I think my personal views are. They may be affected by my religious views. I grew up as an Orthodox Jew and under Orthodox uh, Judaism, uh, a, a mother's life is always preferred over the fetus's life. A life in being is preferred over the potential of a life different from Catholic doctrine. I wasn't brought up Catholic. I was brought up uh, Jewish. In fact, it's obligatory to save the mother's life, even if it means uh, killing a uh, a fetus uh, up until the time of, of um, birth. Um, but when there's no medical necessity, um, Jewish law is a little bit vague and a little bit unclear. 
Um, um, I don't think at the time that people were writing these ancient religious rules, they understood the development of the fetus from the very, very beginning to to viability and to birth. And so there are some fairly primitive notions. Indeed, Roe versus Wade contains some very primitive notions that trimester system is just uh, relatively, relatively uh, arbitrary. Uh, so having given you my views on that, I want to read to you. I don't usually read, <clears throat> but I want to read to you something I wrote in 19, in, in, in 2000, uh, 2000, 2001. This is a book I wrote. It was a, a bestseller all over the country. It was called Supreme Injustice. Um, and it was very critical of the Supreme Court's decision to stop the voting count in Florida, which handed the election over to uh, George W. Bush. Um, and in it, I, I, I basically said that Roe versus Wade planted the seed of judicial activism that resulted in Bush versus Gore, neither, neither of which opinions um, I supported. In one case, I supported the result. I support a woman's right to choose abortion. In the other case, I did not support the result. I wanted Gore to win over, um, uh, over Bush. So here's what I wrote back then, 22 years ago. The short-term consequences of constitutionalizing the abortion issue were powerful and positive for the pro-choice movement. Obviously, women in every state now had the right to have an abortion. Prior to that, only half the states basically had a right to abortion, and, and many of them did not. The long-term consequences, however, were disastrous. Roe versus Wade provided the religious right and the conservative wing of the Republican Party one of the best organizing tools and rallying cries imaginable. The right to life movement was energized by this decision and became one of the most potent political forces, both nationally and in a large number of states. At the same time, the pro-choice movement, which I identify with, um, became lethargic, celebrating its great judicial victory and neglecting the hard work of organizing and fundraising. At least in the beginning, they were willing to give the issue over to nine men and, and rely on that. And that was a terrible, terrible political mistake. Roe versus Wade, I continued, helped secure the presidency for Ronald Reagan by giving him a free issue. It was free because he and other right-to-life Republicans could strongly oppose all abortions without alienating moderate Republican women and men who favored a woman's right to choose but felt secure in the knowledge that the Supreme Court would continue to protect that right regardless of what Reagan and others said and did. Mostly they said, not did. Abortion thus became the most important issue for right-wing religious zealots and a marginal issue for moderate Republicans who favored a woman's right to choose, but who supported the Republican economic and other programs. This helped to destroy, this is the key point, this helped to destroy the moderate wing of the Republican Party, the so-called Rockefeller Republicans, and drove former moderates such as the first George Bush, the elder George Bush, to the right. He started out as a pro-choice Republican and ended up as a right-to-life Republican whose hands were tied by the Supreme Court. Though Roe versus Wade is still the law, I wrote this when it was still the law, the ensuing power of the right-to-life lobby almost certainly pressured Republican presidents to nominate activist right-wing justices such as Antonin Scalia and Clarence Thomas. Certainly, that was true of uh, President Trump, who really had a litmus test. He appointed uh, to the Supreme Court Kavanaugh and... Uh, Gorsuch and uh, Alito uh, and Barrett, all of whom very, very strongly uh, opposed Roe versus Wade. 
And so the Kansas vote may signify something. I think that the best thing that happened to the Democratic Party, I'm not I'm not a loyal Democrat. I vote for the best candidate. If the best candidate's a Republican. I vote for him if the best candidate's an independent. I vote for him. I'm not loyal to any party. But I think that Roe versus Wade helped the Democratic Party and may even help them in the midterm elections, which look pretty desperate for the Democrats. But now a vote is a referendum on abortion. The vast majority of American people oppose the overruling of Roe versus Wade. They certainly oppose laws such as those in Mississippi and in um, Louisiana and Texas and other states, which uh, give women almost no right to uh, abortion. And there are some states that even don't allow abortion early on in the case of rape or incest or, or other imposed pregnancies. So if people, if abortion, the right to choose is important to people, Republicans and Democrats, they're going to vote Democrat. They're not going to vote Republican. They're going to vote in favor of a woman's right to choose abortion. And it, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, the, the midterm election is influenced, at least to some degree, by the overruling of Roe versus Wade. Having said that I did not support Roe versus Wade, and this is going to confuse some people and people are going to yell at me. Having said that Roe versus Wade was wrongly decided, by the way, I'm not the only one who said that. Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that. My friend and colleague, John Hart Ely, said that. Many law professors uh, uh, and others and intellectuals said that. Having said that, I am also not in favor of only overruling Roe versus Wade. How can you say that? If you think Roe versus Wade was wrong, it should be overruled. No. When a precedent has been on the books for almost 50 years and people have come to rely on it and plan their lives around it, and uh, move to states uh, that would otherwise ban uh, abortions because they know that the right is secured by the Supreme Court. Those kinds of reliances have to be taken into account. There is a concept in law called stare decisis. Let the decision stand. Um, don't reach out and overrule decisions, particularly in this case. I mean, this was an outrageous decision by the United States Supreme Court. The issue presented to them on the certiorari petition was not overruling Roe versus Wade. It was whether it is constitutional for Mississippi to pass a statute prohibiting abortion after 15 weeks. That's a very big difference from overruling Roe versus Wade. That was the only issue presented on the cert petition. When cert was granted, the state of Mississippi pulled the bait and switch and said, well, you know, now that you granted a cert, I think maybe we should overrule Roe versus Wade. The Supreme Court had no power to overrule Roe versus Wade, no power, no authority. It was judicial thievery. Why do I say that? Because the Constitution of the United States gives the Supreme Court power only to decide cases and controversies. They can't just make it up as they go along. They can't hold a press conference the day Barrett gets elected uh, nominated and, and confirmed to the Supreme Court. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, we now have Barrett on the Supreme Court. We have five votes to overrule Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade is overruled. No, you can only do that when there's a case in controversy requiring you to decide that issue. When cert was granted, there was no case in controversy about Roe versus Wade. The case in controversy was about 15 weeks. So for those of you phony conservatives uh, who uh, claim you don't believe in judicial activism, and are cheering the overruling of Roe versus Wade in a case 
that didn't even raise the issue, look in the mirror, look in the mirror. You're a bunch of hypocrites. If you really don't believe in judicial activism and judges making uh, the law and judges having limited power, then you would not support a Supreme Court decision unnecessarily overruling Roe versus Wade. Now you might say, look, it was going to be overruled anyway in a year or two or three or five. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows what can happen in three or five years? They should not have overruled Roe versus Wade in this case. They should have waited until the case presented that, until there was a statute enacted, hasn't been any yet, uh, that have come to the court. A statute enacted and challenged that said no abortions, not even under rape, or incest, then test the case and see if it's constitutional. The Supreme Court didn't wait for that. It just reached out and decided a case that was not before it and decided it in a way that was not necessary for the decision. So that's the legal analysis. And I challenge any of you to disagree with me, particularly you conservatives who don't like judicial restraint. You're going to say, here's what you're going to say. Well, it was wrong, so it should be overruled. First of all, many, many wrong decisions aren't overruled. Um, mostly the wrong decisions that are overruled are decisions that have denied people rights, like Plessy versus Ferguson and Dred Scott and the Japanese exclusion uh, cases uh, of the 1940s. Uh, they've been overruled to give people more rights. It's very rare. It's not unprecedented, but it's very rare that you get an overruling of a 50-year-old precedent that granted rights, and now you're taking them away. That's why, by the way, right of gay marriage won't be taken away. It will not be taken away. Uh, you can bet the ranch on that. You can bet two ranches on the fact that interracial marriage won't be taken away. And they're both based on the right of privacy, the same kind of right. Now, interracial marriage is also based on equal protection. But uh, they're based largely on the right of privacy, that marital privacy is sacrosanct and protected by the Constitution, as is the right to use birth control. Now, there are churches that don't approve of birth control. Too bad. Too bad. Then tell your parishioners not to use birth control. You know how many are going to listen to you? But, but you, a church that doesn't believe in birth control, can't make me, who believes in birth control, follow your religious teachings. And um, I predict here today with 100% certainty the Supreme Court will not overrule the Griswold case, will not say that a state has the power to ban birth control. It will not overrule the Loving case, will not say that the state of Virginia has the right to uh, stop a black woman from marrying a white man. And I don't believe, here I'm not as sure, but I'm very sure nonetheless, that it will not overrule um, the decision in uh, a variety of cases that first started and said, you can't criminalize not a, a consented adult homosexual sex. And the second decision that said that you can't deny a homosexual couple, or a gay couple or a lesbian couple, uh, the right to, to marry. Now, I'm not only basing that prediction on the fact that the fifth justice, uh, Kavanaugh, who formed the majority, said that. Uh, obviously, Justice Thomas said the opposite. Uh, I'm, I'm basing it on my knowledge of the Supreme Court, how it operates, and precedent. I think they've had their say on abortion now, and they're not going to restrict it uh, any further. And states that uh, uh, want to now, of course, under the law, can permit abortion up until the day the child is born. I hope they don't. They shouldn't. 
but they have a right to do that. They, they've said the issue goes back to the states. There's no right to life. The court didn't recognize that. And there is no right to choose, the court said, a federal right, constitutional right. Those are rights that are given and taken by the states. And of course, the 10th Amendment to the Constitution, as many of you know, basically reserves um, powers uh, that are not granted to the federal government, to the states. And the 10th Amendment figures largely in, in, in some of these decisions. So again, uh, my prediction, I predicted it um, 50 years ago. Uh, it was 49 years ago, actually. Then I predicted it 20 years ago that in the end, Roe versus Wade uh, not only helped women, helped women enormously and was a very important a development in the freedom of women and the health of women. Very, very important. But it also helped the Republicans. And it also caused the politicization of the Supreme Court. Remember that the real politicization in modern times started with the Bork appointment. I didn't like Bork. Um, he was a very good professor at Yale. I didn't like the fact that he was willing to fire people during the Saturday night massacre uh, when Nixon was uh, properly being impeached. I didn't like him. I didn't support his nomination because of that, but he was certainly qualified to be on the Supreme Court. But because he did not support a woman's right to choose abortion as a constitutional matter, uh, Senator Kennedy, my friend, who I had enormous admiration for, um, opposed it. And the nomination was um, ultimately defeated. That led ultimately to other nominations being defeated or being questioned. Interestingly enough, Justice Scalia is such a charming, decent guy um, that he got through 98 to two or something like that, or 96 to nothing. I don't remember. Very few votes against him, maybe none. Um, somebody can check on that. And that was after Bork. Uh, and everybody knew where Scalia stood uh, on abortion. And so it's, it's interesting. Bork did not present himself well to the Judiciary Committee. My, my son blames it on his beard. I blame it on his being a professor who wrote very, very provocatively. If I had been nominated, when Jimmy Carter was made president, uh, he issued a short list of people that he wanted to put on the Supreme Court. I was one of them. It was never one of my great ambitions to be a judge and be on the receiving end. But if I had been nominated for the Supreme Court back in the day, the right would have opposed me. Today, the left would oppose me. I'm never looking for popularity and I'm never looking to be confirmed for any office. But uh, the politicization uh, has gone very far. Obviously, I'd be eminently qualified by my background to be on, on the Supreme Court or any court, but that wouldn't be the issue on which the decision would be made. It would be based on my politics, my perceived politics. Nobody understands my politics. You know, people tend to think in black and white terms. He's right. He's left. He's liberal. He's conservative. I'm complex and I'm nuanced. And you're never going to know where I come out on a difficult issue that I haven't yet written about um, because maybe I haven't even decided. Um, we talked yesterday about Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. I was ambivalent about that. You couldn't have known or predicted in advance which way I would come down on that. I don't think I could have predicted that until I read about it in the newspaper. I hadn't made up my mind. I'm a thinking person. I think through every single issue. That's what makes me interesting. It also is what makes me hated, both by the right and the left, both of which expect you to simply march to their tune. Um, you're either going to be left like Larry Tribe, you know everything he's going to decide, 
utterly predictable on every issue. The left always wins. The Constitution was written by people on the left in order to support the agenda of the left. He wouldn't say that, but that's the way he argues. Uh, or people on the other side, people who loved me when I defended President Trump's rights under the Constitution, but now hate me because I don't support Biden's impeachment. Of course, I don't support Biden's impeachment because the same arguments I made against Trump's impeachment, I would make against Biden's impeachment. He didn't commit treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. So, you know, take me as I am. I'm not going to change. I'm too old for that. So let's go to the letters. Uh, this has to be probably the dumbest assortment of letters I've ever gotten from a group of real stupid people. I, why do you watch my show? If you're so stupid and you can't understand anything, why are you watching my show? Why are you writing to me? Are you trolls or are you real people? I mean, I got letters. I'll just read a couple of them. Pelosi is one of China's pawns. It's all pretend. You know, she spent her whole life supporting Taiwan. You can agree with it or disagree with it, but she's not one of China's pawns. Um, the Communist Party of China is running America. This is all smoke and mirrors. The Biden administration has done everything to help China and hurt the United States. And, and Nancy Pelosi is one of them. You know, she's been the strongest supporter of Taiwan since she got into Congress. This is all propaganda. China loves Nancy. She helped them get rid of Trump and install a senile old man they have enough dirt on to get him hung for treason. And then this one, which I hate to read to you, but I just have to show you how stupid you people are, uh, the ones who are writing me these notes. Well, this is from Forcheck. Come on, China, and whack the old bitch. I mean, this is a guy calling for murder. This is a guy writing to me and advocating Murder. Now, advocate is protected by the Constitution. He's not inciting, he's advocating. Uh, people think Pelosi is provoking China. Did you all forget she works for China? What a joke. It's not a joke. It's utter stupidity and ignorance. And if you keep writing this kind of nonsense, I'm going to keep reading it and telling people what nonsense this is. That was written by Tri Trumpet 007. Okay. This is by Sirilon. Um, well, they need to have a world war. This is the, they're claiming that Trump, that Biden and Pelosi want a world war. They need to have a world war in order to mask the pending economic collapse, don't they? If there isn't a military conflict to name the new hardship and austerity measures on the peasant classes, et cetera, et cetera. No, nobody wants a war. Uh, thankfully, I don't think China wants a war either. And then there's another one. Come on, China and whack. I'm not going to even read this. Uh, here's another one. Just the same, same nonsense. I mean, this is has to be the, the stupidest collection of people uh, writing me letters, uh, you know, since uh, uh, I'm not even going to make comparisons. If China downs Nancy's plane, the U.S. will be faced with a real dilemma. Who should we send the thank you card to? I mean, what kind of people would write something like that? Um, and then, you know, occasionally you get something nice. I always like hearing your opinions on current events, Alan. I always learn something new, and this too shall pass. I don't know what the referring is uh, to this too shall pass. But, um, you know, the issue of whether she should have gone to, uh, to Taiwan is a, a serious issue. We know that China responded uh, with some military actions, nothing uh attacking Taiwan. We don't know what the United States policy would be 
if China attacked um, uh, Taiwan. I think the indications would seem to be, if I were China, I would act as if, if there were to be an invasion of Taiwan, that the United States would respond militarily. Now, what does that mean? They're not going to send nuclear bombs. That means they would do a little bit more than what they're doing in Ukraine. What they're doing in Ukraine is supplying arms, um, giving logistical advice, doing a range of other things short of sending uh, military. Uh, would they do more in the event of Taiwan? I think they would. Uh, would that include troops on the ground? Well, you know, we've been there before. The United States fought China. It was called North Korea, but, um, you know, and it was called North Vietnam, but uh, they, they were surrogates, obviously, for China. We lost a lot of Americans, uh, a lot of good people, a lot of soldiers. My uncle uh, fortunately survived, but he served four years during the uh, Korean War and got medals and, and left the army as a, I think, a major. Um, he had a really, really moving military funeral when he died at age 95. And um, Just one interesting story about my uncle, my uncle Morris. Uh, he had a, he always had a gun. Uh, obviously, he was in the army. And then he helped capture a, a Luger from uh, a German. And um, when the war was over, they were allowed, to, I don't know if they were allowed to, but everybody kept the souvenirs. My uncle had a Luger and an American issued gun. And uh, he went around to all of his friends and all of his buddies and collected them all and sent them all to Israel, which was then fighting for its independence in 19, in 1948. Uh, um, that story is recounted in a new book that uh, my uncle um, has just written, Zaharia Dorshav. He changed his name from Dershowitz to Dorshav when he moved to Israel. And he just wrote a book uh, about my family's history, I wrote the introduction, it's called the, the Saga, the Dershowitz Saga, and it tells the story of my family from the time they left Pilsno, a small town in um, Galicia, uh, Poland, and moved to the Lower East Side, my grandfather in 1889, and you know, we've been living in America more than half of its existence as a country, and my family is very, very patriotic um, and very supportive of of the United States as they are of, of Israel. Available uh, on Amazon. Hmm? Available on Amazon. Oh, my uncle's book's available on Amazon. I should have a copy of it somewhere, but I don't, I don't have it right around. Uh, we'll do it next time. So I, I urge you, if you want to read a really interesting book about uh, the journey of a family and uh, a journey that really represents every immigrant story in America. And, and you know, people, people who are, Immigrant backgrounds, you know, and are opposed to immigration. I'm reminded of Yakov Smirnov, the great Russian comic uh, who came over to the United States from Russia. And he used to do a bit in which he stood at the Statue of Liberty and said, thank you, Miss Liberty, for bringing me to America, to the land of freedom and equality and opportunity. Now I want you to do just one more thing. Keep the rest of those damn immigrants out. I mean, that's been so often what people who have come to this country or the children or grandchildren of people who have come to this country, they're happy to be here, but they don't want anybody else. They don't want anybody else. By the way, it doesn't only affect people between religions. It happened when my grandparents came over here in the late 19th century. Who do you think was trying to keep them out? German Jews, the rich 
German Jews, the elite German Jews. Um, they wanted to send them to Galveston, Texas, so they shouldn't crowd the city of, uh, of New York. Um, they built clubs that excluded my kind of Jews. You think only WASP clubs excluded Jews? No, German Jewish clubs excluded Jews like me who came from a Polish or Eastern European background. Uh, it's amazing how people just don't appreciate uh, what this country has done for them and how much this country has benefited from uh, a relatively open door policy for immigration, which unfortunately ended in the first quarter of the 20th century. And uh, uh, it's unimaginable. The United States of America without immigration is unimaginable. Uh, when you think of most of the products we have, much of our culture, much of our heritage, it's based on immigrants of every background, every background. Yeah, immigrants have trouble in the beginning adjusting. And yeah, there can be rates of crime among immigrants of every immigrant group. I'll never forget reading a book. It was called The Sheriff's Manual of New York. And it was written about 1885 or something like that. And it had a list of all the notorious criminals uh, in New York in pictures. A lot of them were Jews. Um, and, and, you know, they were bank robbers and they were pickpockets and they were burglars. Why? Because they came over to this country alone. They left their families behind to try to earn money for them to come over. They had no women in their lives. And women do have uh, an influence on men against violence and crime. And, and every group, Irish Americans, had crime, Italian Americans had crime, Jewish Americans had crime, Greek Americans had crime, African Americans had crime. Of course you're gonna get crime among immigrant groups and then that disappears. You know, you, I just saw a great, great series on television called The Offer. It's about the history of the making of The Godfather. And, uh, you know, the lesson of The Godfather, great, great movies, you know, the father is the, is the Godfather. You, Otis people killed and he kills people. But his goal is that the next generation of the generation after that, these kids, the grandkids, will go to Harvard Business School and uh, use their talent, which made them such good gangsters, to make them good, good citizens. It's been the history of America, and uh, it will continue to be the history of America if we use our intelligence to allow immigration lawful immigration, I'm not talking about illegal immigration, lawful immigration to enrich and enhance uh, the culture of America. You'll disagree. Write me letters, but write me intelligent letters. Stop with the nonsense. Stop with the name calling. Just write me smart letters and I'll give you smart responses. Uh, see you next week.